This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former FDNY Special Operations Firefighter, and the man behind surviving the job, Steve Gillespie. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from being the child of a volunteer firefighter, his own journey into the volunteer fire service, law enforcement, joining the FDNY, his first-hand accounts of the line of duty deaths at 9-11, the Black Sunday fire, and the Deutsche Bank fire, his powerful mental health story, how he developed a program to help other firefighters, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Steve Gillespie. Enjoy. Well, Steve, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Uh, thank you, James. It's thank you so much. It's really uh, I'm honored to be here. I'm a kind of no little nervous with some <laughs> of the guests that you've had on. Well, that's what's funny is I have people that are you know special operations or you know FDMY and they, they say things like that. And obviously, this is you know a firefighter talking to a firefighter, but that perceived um, uh, you know 
indifference board or the perceived differences between what you do as a humble firefighter and what other people do it's interesting because i get that from so many other people but the entire 800 you know episode list is good people that happen to do a host of things some of them are hollywood stars and some of them are like you and me just firefighters trying to you know make the world a little better and i gotta tell you my my son is so excited that he is only three degrees of separation from thanos now so (laughs) Yeah, he's definitely Josh is definitely one of the one of the the biggest you know stars as it were. So yeah, when that one came out, people were kind of blown away. But uh, yeah. he's, he's a great person and was a volunteer firefighter himself. I just learned actually Jack Nicholson was a volunteer firefighter. No too. way! So uh, I have to work out how I can get to him next. That would be some guest. <laughs> so um, we have navigated both of our own um, gremlins in our IT on each side. So now we are actually good to go. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in North Charleston, South Carolina. All right. Well, we all know that that is not where you're originally from based on the accent and your resume. (laughs) So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, I I was born in the Bronx, but I never actually lived there. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, right on the other side of the Hudson River from New York City, um, about seven miles from the George Washington Bridge, which is the bridge that connects um, New York and New Jersey. Uh, I grew up there. Um, mom and dad, my mom worked for an accountant. My dad was a salesman for Beach Nut Baby Food. And I have a younger sister who uh, she lives um, down in South Jersey, same town my parents live in. No, she's a social worker. Baby food. Let's go there for a second. Yeah. As we now get into, you know, modern day and and we're having, in in my opinion, a a paradigm shift and enlightenment on exercise, food, you know, the things that are actually holistically good for us. We look back at the world of baby food and realize that some of the company's food actually wasn't as healthy as we originally thought. So have you had any discussions about that with your dad? No, no. Later on in his career, it kind of moved from baby food to other things. But when I was younger and I was in a lot better shape and was working out, I would actually eat baby food as a snack. Sometimes the Chiquita bananas were the best. Brilliant. Yeah, because I know even with the formula, my little boy was uh, lactose intolerant even when he was a baby. He had allergies. And so we went to soy. Um, I think Ephemil, I forget the the uh, yeah. brand now. Mm-hmm. But um but yeah, but then you fast forward and you see, you know, the way that the soy is is you know grown and the chemicals that are on it, and then you're like, okay, this is probably actually not the best for a child. So I'm glad now that that's evolved. Arsenic, right? Is that what they're saying is in the? Yeah, I'm not sure even about that. Probably, but I mean, just the the chemical, you know, the pesticides, and um, yeah. you've got the GMO, which um, I have a limited understanding, but from what I understand. You know, it's not in its natural form, so therefore the body's going to view it as a, you know, something that it has a inflammatory response to rather than is nourishing. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, there's and also the the GMO allows them to put more pesticides on, I believe. So it's 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 a it's a horrible thing to give to a newborn, at least. You're a smart man, James. <laughs> I think I probably butchered that, but I think that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, then, when you were young, talk to me about the sports and athletics that you were doing. Um, I was a big hockey fan. So unfortunately though, I mean, I played all the, you know, the little league sports, baseball, football, um, but hockey was something I was really interested in, but there wasn't anything 
around. So I had to wait till high school to actually start playing hockey. So I went to a high school um, that had a hockey team and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't that good because most kids start hockey so much younger. They had a big head start. So uh, my NHL career was very limited. So Now, I talk about this a lot. When I first came to America, um, I saw a high-level performance in the high school and college age and then so many Uncle Rico stories of, you know, injured, now overweight 40-year-olds talking about how they were the, you know, the high school star and then they had their knee blowout, whatever. But when it comes to hockey, like football, like soccer, you know, what I call football, it seems like a lot of people still play. So is mm -hmm. that a sport that there is longevity as opposed to, for example, football? I, I think so. I think there's a lot more opportunity to actually, to actually play. You know, there's leagues where, um, you know, over 40, over 50 leagues, um, huff puff leagues, they call them because the guys are so old, they're just <laughs> huffing and puffing. So, but the opportunities there. Also, I, I think the thing with hockey is that you actually have to have <laughs> an ice rink to play. Um, and what's really cool, I didn't think it would happen, but in North Charleston, there's actually an, an ice rink, an ice rink down here. So I started playing again for a little while, and then, uh, you know, the old body gave up. So pulled a hammy, you know, took a little while to recover. So I hung the skates up. Well, we're going to talk about your career into the first responder professions, plural. When you were young, did you have any firefighter or cops in your family? My dad was a volunteer firefighter. Um, my, my parents grew up in the Bronx. Um, one, one thing that my dad always wanted to do was be a New York City fireman. And it was around the time of the layoffs where he was trying to get on. So he actually never got on. But uh, growing up as a kid, I spent my, I, I grew up in a firehouse, the volunteer firehouse down the road um, from my house. And even more so than the volunteers is that, you know, I grew up in the seventies during the war years. And my dad had a, an old Bearcat scanner. I'm going to show my age with this one. Where, uh, with the lights that that uh, that went across the um, the uh, the analog lights, and you'd have to buy a a, a a crystal in order to be able to listen to the frequency. And we would listen to the Bronx all the time. And my dad was like, you know, second alarm on Burnside Avenue. Come on, let's go. And we'd hop in the car, and it was so close. And we used to buff jobs, you know, as a kid. And also one of my dad's, uh, there was a neighbor who lived across the street. Uh, he was an aide in the 16th Battalion, which is right in the heart of Harlem. And uh, uh, we would go over there every once in a while. So I, I grew up around it. It's the only, the only thing I've ever wanted to do in my entire life was be a New York City fireman. Now, with the volunteer firefighter role, I think a lot of people don't understand um, Firstly, obviously, the fact that you're, you know, sitting around dinner and all of a sudden mom or dad have to get up and leave. Um, and, and that hypervigilance that probably comes with having the pager. I mean, when we're in a station as a full-time career firefighter. Once we go home, we don't have to worry about calls. But these, these men and women obviously are waiting the whole time. But another big, big element is if you are a volunteer in the town that you work in, then you're running on your friends and your colleagues and you know, the shopkeepers and the bankers and the accountants. And so I could imagine that that town becomes, 
you know, a host of reminders of some of the tragedies that they've seen. Did your dad ever talk about that side of it? My dad didn't really. That's not anything that anybody talked about um, back then. I remember him uh, being on a, uh, a motor vehicle accident. The New Jersey Turnpike ran the northern end of it, ran through our town. And I remember there being a fatal accident that he had gone to. And uh, he seemed a little off when uh, when he came home. And my mom was uh, my mom asked him and, uh, you know, she said something along the lines of, you know, um, what did you see? And he just said, I saw too much. So but that's not something that, you know, that anybody talked about in the 70s. So, yeah, no, exactly. When I talk to so many people now and we're going to get into not only your journey in uniform, but the transition out and what you're doing now in the mental health space, I've had a real, you know, awakening on how much our childhood impacts us before we even put on the uniform and then progress through our job. When you look back mm -hmm. at your career now with this lens that you have today, are there any elements of your childhood that you contribute that you consider contributed to some of the trauma that you had later? I don't, I don't think so. You know, I, I've been in therapy for a long time and sometimes, you know, it was mostly about the post-traumatic stuff. You know, but it went to, uh, you know, every once in a while it went to the family, but there's really nothing that I can, you know, unless I get DM, EMDR soon and I, something just comes, comes, out, comes out out of the woodwork. But, you know. Yeah. Well, I think it's a very important conversation. Some people haven't. I mean, I have things, but in all honesty, I think a lot of them were addressed healthily. It's completely, un sub, you know, unconsciously. It wasn't that I had this amazing awareness of my own mental health. I was just very fortunate to have some positive coping mechanisms in my childhood as well. But mm -hmm. we don't talk about that foundation. So a lot of people do have things on here and the people that don't, you know, I think that's another great lesson. I mean, how you dealt with the things that we're going to talk about today is probably going to relate to the good foundation that you brought into the job. Mm -hmm. Sure. So talk to me about that then. You wanted to become a New York City firefighter. I know that journey wasn't a direct route to the fire service. So walk yeah. me through from high school onwards. Yeah, so 17, the, the three days before my 17th birthday, I was able to join um, the Ridgefield Volunteer Fire Department and uh, got my gear and my pager and actually had a call the first night. So it, it I lived so close to the firehouse and there were there were a, a, a lot of local kids. It was, uh, um, th the pager would go off and we all started running towards the firehouse. And I'm trying to think of a scene in, in a movie where it was one person running and then somebody else joined in and then there was two people running. And by the time, you know, we got a half a block from the firehouse, there were like five of us running together, you know, like chariots of fire or something like that. And uh, we'd all get to the firehouse because, you know, whoever was first on the truck got to go. So, uh, yeah, my first call was a raging dumpster fire. <laughs> and, uh, um, but that was, uh, you know, again, it's, it's Sundays, you know, Sundays was the drill day. So, uh, um, you know, when I was 17, I got to, I got to start to do that. And, uh, I did that for about 10 years until I got into New York. So, so I know you didn't go career fire initially then. So what was the uh, profession that you found yourself in? Oh, I, I was a police officer, which I hate to admit sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and again, in the town I grew up in, um, I was 20 years old and, uh, the police department was hiring and everything that I did in my life was I'm going to do this until I get on the fire department. 
I'm going to go to college until I get on the fire department. Um, and unfortunately, too immature at the time when I went to college, failed out, um, was driving a truck for a little while. And then the police department was hiring. So I took the test and uh, was lucky enough to, to get hired, um, you know, in the town that I grew up in, which is sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. So talk to me about that. Firstly, what were some of the career calls you had while you were wearing a police uniform? Probably, uh, um, well, the first fatal, fatal accident I ever had was when I was 17 uh, in a volunteer fire department, which was, again, another call on the New Jersey Turnpike. Um, so that's what started out, um, you know, not knowing what any of that stuff was. But probably, the, I think the thing with me is that there's some calls that are so traumatic um, that the everyday little ones um, just kind of fall to the wayside. The thing that, um, you know, plenty of fatal, fatal accidents. The one that bothers me the most uh, when I was a police officer was doing CPR on a three month old. So, yeah, it's always either the, the multi casualty incidents or, or the PD in- incidents that really seem to yeah, stick yeah. with us the most. Yeah, and that was a whole thing where I, somehow I wound up uh, in the ambulance with the paramedic and I did ventilations the whole way. And when we got to the hospital, the pediatric team was was waiting there. The doctor was very pregnant. Um, and when they called, after they called the code, she she lost it. And, uh, you know, trying to understand that, you know, this doctor who's trained her, you know, her entire adult career to do something like this and and she's not handling this the way, you know, how am I supposed to feel about that? Yeah, no, exactly. And that inability to save is something I talk about a lot because I had, I just lost a lot of people in my career as a, a firefighter and a paramedic. Um, and when you are taught to do A, B, and C, the result is supposed to be D, you know? And so, you know, you've got this woman who has all the training, who probably has saved people in the past, has a little baby in her, in you know, inside her at that time, and now she's lost a three-month-old. I mean, that must have been brutal. Yeah, and, and, and uh, um, you know, that's the part that, uh, yeah, I don't even know how to, how to explain how, how she was, was feeling, but, you know, we do these things, we train, you know, and most of the time in training, there's a positive outcome, you know, so you, you want it to be like that all the time. But um, I think um, second guessing ourselves, you know, throughout our career is something that really causes us a lot of mental strain as well. You know, I could have, if, what if I did, my, my therapist used to say, stop shitting on yourself. So, what it could have, should have. Yeah, no, exactly. I think also that um, imposter syndrome, that that fear that you're not going to perform, you know, on the way to a call, like I'm going to screw up, I'm going to search the wrong room, I'm not going to give the right drug dose, whatever it is. And you do, you know, you get on scene and if you train well, you do the right things. But then the next call comes in and that same voice is in your head. Yeah, I I think I've always had that. I've always had that, um, um, you know, I'm not as good as everybody thinks I am. Um, but I think that that's what people that, that really care about the occupation. I think that's a good thing. I don't want to call it fear of, of being able to form, but you, you care enough to be the best that you can. So it makes you want to be better. You know, it makes you want to, it makes you want to train harder to be able to try and, 
handle anything that, uh, you know, anything that you can. So, One of my guests, Alana Stott, that I just had on, she, she said uh, she'd heard a quote, the only people that don't have imposter syndrome are imposters. I thought that was that was profound. I, I like that. I like very good. So, well, speaking of imposters, so you're a firefighter wearing a police officer's uniform <laughs> <laughs> um, because you've got that burning in your heart, and it's what you want to do is is to be in the fire service. I've been in in the firefighter's uniform, but missing that amazing crew that I had prior. Like, for example, Anaheim, California. I had the absolute rock star crew the you know, my favorite crew of my whole career and i was chasing that after so sometimes i'd be with a crew or a station that was the other end of the spectrum and it, it was it was hard it was depressing to be honest when you are yearning to be a firefighter how did you deal with with the years and years of waiting to finally get that position uh <laughs> i don't know that's a that i don't know how to answer that um I guess being volunteer, trying to take some classes, uh, being a police officer and trying to take um, classes that kind of brought the two worlds together. But I also, at the time, I would, my dad's best friend, um, uh, retired a battalion chief in New York City. And we would go hang out at, at the firehouse that he worked in, you know, and it was just being around those guys and going on a call and seeing that culture and everything. It's just like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait to do this. Uh, it took six and a half years from the time I took the written test to the time I actually got hired. So it was a long process. Now you've, you've, your dad was a firefighter. You were a volunteer firefighter. You're an active duty police officer. What was it that took so long in that process? Cause you'd think that you'd get some, you know, extra points for all these things that you're already doing. No, it was, it was uh, totally different. New York City, it's its own entity. I lived in New Jersey um, at the time. wasn't a big deal, but now with the hiring processes now, uh, you get extra points for living in New York City. You get, um, But at the time, I just needed to have uh, a New York address by time of employment. But, you know, 40,000 people took the, took the test um, in 1986 that... Um, by the time it whittled down to you have to take the written test and then you had to take the physical exam, which both weighed 50-50 towards your score. And then like that, like veterans would get, uh, at the time it was just veterans were able to get extra points. So, but it was so competitive at the time, you literally had to get 100 on a written and 100 on a physical uh, in order to be even close enough to get on. And I thought I wasn't going to make it because I missed a hundred on the physical by four seconds. So my physical score was 95. So I was devastated. You know, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And um, I remember my list number was 2,671. And the list is usually good for four years. And my, it was supposed to end in May of 94. And I got hired in April of 94. So I just, I just made it, which, you know, what do you call the person who graduates last in medical school? Doctor. Doctor. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't care. You know, I, I made it. I made it. I was, I was able to, uh, what a day, you know, my dad cried like a baby when I got the letter. So. It's amazing. Well, with the background in the volunteer fire service, talk to me about the difference when you entered, I don't know if it was called the rock back then, but when you entered yeah. the rock. 
Yeah, I think it was the the pace the pace of things. You know, again, coming from both sides, the volunteer side and uh, and uh, um, the paid side, you can see you can see the difference. You know, some volunteer fire departments, you know, show up with twelve people on, on one fire truck. You know, um, some show up with two. Um, in New York City, I think the difference the difference is how calculated everything is. The procedures are so well written that everybody has a specific job to do. Um, without having to be told, you know, it's, um, you know, everybody on the first four engines and the first two ladder trucks knows exactly what they're supposed to do. And to be able to learn all those things, to read and to study, um, you know, what it is, the positions that, you, that you're supposed to have and how, if, if you actually listen to, you know, I could go off on a tangent on this one, James, you know, I'm not a huge fan of command, you know, where the person who's sitting in the car Nowhere near the fire is telling everybody what to do and nobody's allowed to do anything until they're told. Now, if you listen to audio of the fire ground in New York City, um, nobody's saying anything over the radio because everybody is doing what it is that they're supposed to do. <laughs> and to try and get, you know, other, uh, um, other departments, not everybody's going to be able to follow that. Um, but, you know, learning that at the, at the rock and, and, reading uh, the stacks and books of procedures and, 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 and all that stuff to try and find out, because again, you're like, you don't want to be the imposter. You know, if you're given a job to do on a fire ground, everything that you do or don't do is going to be affected. You know, if you don't vent the window at a certain time, it could have a positive or a negative. If you do vent the window at a certain time, it could have a positive or a negative. And just trying to understand how, everything was so coordinated because that's what it's a, it's a dance almost. So. Well, through my own career, you know, observation, I've worked for some amazing departments and, and crews in, in different departments and the other side of the spectrum. And what I've seen is the department that had the highest level of training. And I think they, they did mirror FDNY a lot. They did, they had a great relationship with some of your firehouses and they did a lot of knowledge sharing, but, we were trained, you know, it was like a rehearsal, you know, where we yeah. had the forward lay, you know, all these different things, uh, lay the bundles, um, lay one, lay two, there was all these names and, and the, the captain would just turn around and say, all right, lay the bundles. And there would be this orchestrated, beautiful series of stripping the engine, getting the rig ready, either laying out towards the hydrant, laying away, whatever it was in that particular scenario. But it meant that, that um, as you said, the radio chatter came to a minimum. My captain on the truck company I was in, um, you know, would turn around, say a couple of things. And again, off we go, ladders come out, saws come out, you know, and, and the, the aerial is being positioned with minimal um, chatter. What I've seen with the, the other side is there's panic on the radio because basically people are trying to undo the fact that they haven't trained for this scenario mm -hmm. and they're trying to yeah. compensate with words. So for me, training and trust is the enemy of the uh, micromanager. I manager. <laughs> yeah, I've worked for, um, um, I mean, I could go a bunch of different ways with that. Training is definitely the biggest thing. And when I, uh, when I was in New York, um, uh, I've done a, a lot of training. Um, I taught recruit school for one class, which is probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done uh, in my career in New York. Um, being in special operations, uh, we kind of had our own academy. Um, where we had a technical rescue school and the training that we would go to all the time. Um, I work for uh, 
I work for a training company on the side. Don't do so much with them anymore. But uh, you've had him as a guest, Aaron Heller. Yes. And on scene, on scene training associates. You know, I worked with Aaron uh, doing stuff. I'm all about, I'm, I'm all about the training because uh, I, I think we're in a, we're in a world now where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably a lot, probably a lot older than you, but YouTube and everything wasn't around at the time uh, where people look at a video on YouTube and think that, Oh, that's really cool. I'm going to try that at the next fire I go to, but you don't try it at the next fire. You train on it and train on it and train on it until you become competent. And then when you can use that skill at a fire, that's, that's when you use it, you know, and I was fortunate enough to, um, uh, when I got on New York, uh, I went to a squad company with only two years on a job, which was unheard of. But the people that I worked with there were amazing. And we just drilled all the time. And the repetition of it and, you know, talk about um, recognition, prime decision making, you know, and gut feeling that's real, you know, that, uh, your body telling you that there's, you know, there's been plenty of times in my career where something has told you, it's, this is not right. You know, and your body's telling you that, but that comes from all the training that you did over and over and over again to be able to, you know, to recognize stuff like that. So I think um, Colonel Grossman, I think is um, on combat is an excellent book for uh, talk about recognition, prime decision-making. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I've had him on the show a couple of times, actually. He's an amazing man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that, I think now the modern fire service, which I'd include my career, I'm five years out now, but um, I've watched it over those 14 years go from frequent fires to, you know, less and less and less and less frequent because if something burns down, they rebuild it a lot safer and it tends not to burn. When you first came on, um, contrast to the, you know, a lot of us in 2023 now, where were you assigned and what was the, the kind of op tempo? What was the fire frequency early in your career? Uh, well, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, you know, New York Fire Department is unique. It's, it's so big. You know, um, there's five, five boroughs. You know, so you can work in a different... I worked in the Bronx my whole career. But the, the mindset and the tempo in the Bronx was very different than it was in Staten Island, um, you know, uh, than it was in Manhattan or Queens or Brooklyn. And there were, there were inner temples within those boroughs. There were slow areas uh, in each one of them, and there's busy areas in each one of them. Um, you know, the Northern Bronx at the time didn't have much fire duty. Everybody knows about the South Bronx and the war years and report from Engine Company 82 and you know, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Unfortunately, when I got on, I got assigned to a company in the North Bronx, um, which didn't have a lot of fire duty at the time, which is ironic. They're probably one of the, the busiest in the city now. Um, but I would sit, be in the house watching, listen to all the jobs going on down in the South Bronx, 1075 here, 1075 there. And I'm like, I can't wait to get down there. I want to go down there. I want to go down there. And I had the opportunity to go to at the time it was called engine 401 that's a whole long story about the history of how they they closed the firehouse because of budget cuts and then when they reopened them um, they were going to be a special unit but they couldn't change the name because of the because uh, of the court documents it had to stay engine 401 
So they called it Enhanced Engine 4 1, um, but it was doing the same things as Squad 1 in Brooklyn did. And we were doing the same training as all the rescue, uh, the rescue companies. But I got there and probably not as prepared as I, as I should be. And, you know, the first night we went to a vacant building and, um, you know, right after the, the night tour started at six o'clock and we started cutting the roof, you know, and um, my first night tour in squad 41 um, from six at night till nine o'clock in the morning. I don't say this to brag. I say this to more to say about the experience that the guys that I worked with had. We went to six fires in 15 hours and, and worked the four of them, you know, so the early, you know, the, uh, you know, every generation of firefighters, you know, talks about the generation before them. I wish I was born during the war years, you know, but the eighties were busy as well, you know, and the nineties were busy as well. It just wasn't busy as the previous decade, but still I, um, for the first five years, up probably up until September 11th, I was going to a fire every single night you know, sometimes multiple fires a night, you know, just because our response area was so big and what we were responsible for, you know, but there are parts of the city that, you know, that still have a lot of fire duty and other parts that, that are pretty quiet. You know, Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan doesn't have a lot of fire duty, but you'll run your ass off with alarms and, you know, getting stuck in traffic and, and, and all that other stuff. So it's a really, the, the frequency of everything really varies depending on what part of the city you're in. Yeah, I mean, I've had that in a lot of the places that I've worked, you know, and always sought the places that had the most fire. But, you know, you watched the 9-11 documentary and I had the French brothers on on the show that made that, that proby, you know, it wasn't getting in a fire forever. And I think he got, was a dumpster fire was his first one as well. But then, as you said, you contrast that to some of the, you know, the other areas where they're burning all the time. And I know it's, there's nothing worse than being a firefighter in the wrong station, listening to a fire in the right station. I, I truly believe that there's, um, there's firefighters that want to be in busy places that are in busy places. There's firefighters that want to be in slow places that want to be in busy places and there's firefighters that are in slow places that want to be in slow places. So uh, it's all, it's all what you want, you know, it's all. And again, you, know, you talk about the personality of the type of not everybody, you know, is a superstar fireman. Not everybody has the passion that you and I had for it, you know, and that's something that you have to deal with. A lot of the busier companies you go to, the, um, the mentality is probably a, is a lot different. You know, some guys just want to go to work for 24 hours and do nothing and go home. And that's fine. I don't want to work with those kind of people. You know, I want to work with the kind of people that are, you know, that are drilling all the time and want to go to fires and want to get better, you know, and, and that's why I went to, uh, I had the opportunity to go to 41 and it was amazing. I spent 13 years there and the people that I worked with were, were tremendous. So you talk about 41 being a very busy, you know, special operations unit, but you also talked about the, the amount of training that you did. When I look at, again, the, the kind of um, decrease in fires that I saw over my career, and in the last place was protecting a theme park, so it had a lot of fire protection, so we hardly ever got any fire. It was a trade-off I made to, to make my son's life better. Um, but 
what should have happened in that department would have been should have been training out the yin yang what i've seen in my career is the ones that already get a shitload of fire usually are the crews that are also doing you know strength and conditioning training together they're doing drills they're so the high run stations that maybe would be allowed to say we don't need to train as much because we get a lot of calls in my opinion were the ones that trained the most as well talk to me about your experience with that um squad company and you know now obviously you've transitioned through another couple of uh, departments the importance of training as we see less and less and less fire in the fire service but the only the best thing that you can do in your career to get better as a firefighter is to go to fires and put everything to work but you have to learn to trade before that so you have to do training um so the more training you do the more prepared you can be for when it actually comes whether it, it's frequent or not because it, it, you have to get to a point in your career where it's it's second nature to you you know you have to force enough doors to understand you know um, which end of the tool goes in the door is it inward outward inward opening outward opening um, where to cut a hole when you're venting the roof over the fire you know how to figure out you know flow path and stuff you know it's funny I, I try not to use a lot of those a lot of those terms because the guys that I learned from were the guys that wrote the books on how to do this stuff and they just didn't call it those things and they didn't have it they didn't have the means that we have now, you know, they tried things. If it worked, they said, try this. If they tried something and it didn't work, they're like, don't ever do that. <laughs> it's not, it's not good. And now we have, and it's great because of the world we're in now, but we have NIST and UL doing these studies and be able to show us what we already knew with the cameras and the technology that these guys couldn't, they just could tell us about it. You know, I call it old school, new school. You know, I learned from old school guys that were doing it so much that, you know, they understood how fire behavior worked, you know. Um, and now you have, we do these studies where we put these cameras and, and thermometers and everything and look inside these buildings and you can see how it works from the inside. Um, and it's, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. And that's what we have to fall, <clears throat> excuse me, we have to fall back on that now is, is, uh, you know, but the only thing that can make you better is training. You have to be able to, you know, you can't go to an incident and be prepared to do, not even be prepared to do something, to do something on a fire ground that you've never practiced before. You know, and again, that's where the training, it, um, you know, the repetition of it makes it second nature. You know, when you're, um, when, when you're forcing a door, you're not thinking about what end of the tool that you're putting in the door. You're thinking 10 feet inside that door, where in relation to uh, the fire might a victim be? You know, where is the fire in relation to the entrance that I'm going in? You know, there's so many different things. It just has to be second nature. And the only way you can do that is by training. You, know? you talked about the men, I'm assuming the men at that point that you were working with um already understanding these principles and it, it kind of underlines a, a quote that i love don't wait for science to prove what you already know and we're getting these people like oh we just did studies and apparently you know 
not putting chemicals on your vegetables is actually proven to be good for you. It's like, do we really need to do research on that? Um, and it's the same with this. And what I've seen in my career is in some people, there's almost an opposition to innovation, to progress. And, you know, even to the point, and I talk about this a lot because it really irks me, like making fun of the European fire helmet when actually that's a better helmet for actually facilitating the job that is a better helmet so you know sometimes ego you know vanity gets in the way of progress so again when you're working with this this group of of men that are performing at a high level that are having these realizations through their experience what have you seen as far as resistance of that knowledge being passed on and 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 the innovation in our tools and gear well have you heard the saying there's two things that firefighters hate change in the way things are yes yeah so I, we're our own worst enemies you know we, we we'll hold on to something so long just because you know some guys would still rather have horses because you know the horses don't break down or whatever i think it it's my my whole thing is is that um, again we're transitioning from retiring from new york coming down to south carolina um New York does what New York does because it works for New York. Um, and that doesn't make it right or wrong, you know, uh, but the fire service is very reactive as opposed to proactive. So if, if I was doing a class or teaching a lecturing somewhere, you know, having four letters after, after your name, you know, FDNY was a blessing and a curse at the same time. You know, there were people that would go to see you just because you worked for FDNY, which those letters don't give me any credibility. I could be a hairbag fireman, you know, but the, the other side of it was that FDNY got to, and a lot of departments, when you become, uh, when you're reactive, we changed a lot of things because guys got seriously hurt or died. So, um, but it's really hard to be proactive in stuff in a, in an occupation that has so much tradition so um i think i i think i answered your question but yeah well i think what i've seen myself is that sometimes the lines are blurred between tradition and history like for yeah. example a lot of things that we wear you know, three-quarter length boots and, and horses and steamer engines that is history that is not tradition courage camaraderie you know service that is tradition that's actually the tenants that you can bring through time. You can allow mm -hmm. your gear to innovate. You can allow the, the work week to change with the increasing demand of the modern day firefighter. But tradition is not, you know, is not the helmet, is not the work week. That's something that we did or something that we wore. So, so you know, I think the understanding that history is great and a leather helmet, let's say we have this awakening and we, we kind of get over that. Mm -hmm. um, the image and, and move forward and, and now we're in this more advanced um, bunker gear that that beautiful leather helmet can be on our office wall. That's a history. That's what I used to do. That's what I used to wear. But this is what we're doing today because tradition mm -hmm. is being the best, best firefighter I can be. And actually, this equipment allows me to be even better. Even better. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I like that tradition and history. That's good. So what about from the fitness standpoint? Again, you're going to a lot of fires. What was the kind of philosophy in, in the uh, special operations community as far as that side? So every, every firehouse has, has a decent gym. I'm going to say, you know, 
95% of them. Um, and I think it, it's not something that was understood so much because, uh, you know, I'm retired seven and a half years now and I got promoted in 2009. So I was 14 years now since I've actually been a fire, uh, been a fireman on, on a fire truck as opposed to a, a boss or a supervisor. Um, but guys learned whether, whether it was known or not, they, figured out how to use their body. I learned early in my career that just because a guy has a really cool mustache and looks like a fireman doesn't mean that they're going to be able to perform on the fire floor, you know, and the 300 pound guy who's smoking and eating donuts and drinking coffee, you know, although that might not be really healthy for him, but those guys were some of the best firefighters because they were able to understand what their bodies were doing. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's evolved o over time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, a lot of, um, when I was in New York, it was a very big running culture. Um, they would have five K's and turkey trots, they called them. And, and um, so a lot of guys ran a lot for, you know, for their cardio, but um, there's other guys that are very muscular that, um, you know, they wouldn't last 30 seconds, you know, breathing on air because you know all that all that muscle takes a lot more oxygen to you know uh you know those guys that suck down their cylinder in six minutes you know um but it, it's it's all i whatever works whatever works for you you know i, I don't want to call them fads um but it's it's evolved over the you know supplements weren't really weren't really big um you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago. Not that I can, I mean, I remember doing creatine when I was younger, you know, which probably is horrible for you, but, uh, um, but just trying to stay in shape to be able to, to perform on, on, on a fire floor. And, um, you know, I, I would always work out before I went to work. You know, I had a routine if, if uh, um, you know, I would go to the gym at two o'clock, work out till about three thirty and then start driving in and usually get into work about five and then change your shifts with six o'clock. And then um, at the end of my shift, six o'clock the following night, I would work out before, before I go home. So. Well, I think that conversation is, is, you know, I hear it a lot with, with the person who wasn't in the best shape, but had the efficiency, had that kind of old yeah. ball strength. Mm -hmm. But then I guess to counter that, the the argument is well imagine how much better they would have been Wait, better they if, would have if been. they Absolutely. could understand but i mean when you're talking about the 80s and 90s i've discussed this a lot what we were taught as far as strength and conditioning and nutrition was not 100 percent wrong but it was really poor compared to what we know now so i think modern day firefighters we have no excuse to be out of shape because all the good information is there i mean one of my sponsors thorn is the best supplement yeah. company in the in the world i would argue and they offer mm -hmm. almost half off to anyone that's in the first responder profession so there's your supplements right there you know crossfit yeah. and wolf brigade and all these you know all, i've had so many people on the show that have great great programming for firefighters whether it's kettlebells and maces whether it's barbells and you know calisthenics mm -hmm. So I think that's the, the, the conversation I like to hear now is, yes, there are some people that did it really well back in the day. And like you said, they did the best with what they had at the time. We don't have an excuse in 2023. We have all the information. So therefore, if you're showing up in a fire academy or a department, 
you have no excuse but to be in the best shape you can be in. I agree 100%. But have to um, go back to the other part where you said the frequency of fires sometimes allows us to not, you know, to, to slack off on, on that, on that part, you know, where, um, you know, the sedentary lifestyle inside a firehouse, you know, I hate it. I don't want to, um, as an officer, I would not allow guys to play video games in the firehouse. That was not a place for, you know, if, um, if you have spare time or either drilling, you know, training on something, working out, or you're reading something. Uh, but yeah, the, the technology is there. Uh, what um, uh, tactical athletes you call it now? Yes. Yeah. Uh, perfect. You know, that's exactly, that's what it is. You know, we have to be um, uh, try not to get down a rabbit hole, but we're, we're lowering standards in, in the fires in, in civil service in general, because somewhere along the line, somebody decided that because it's a civil service occupation that everybody can do it. You know, well, not everybody can be a fighter pilot. You know, not everybody can be in a lawyer or an accountant. You know, it really takes, um, I don't want to say a special type, but somebody that's going to be dedicated to, to do all those things, to be able to, um, you know, keep their mind and body strong, to be able to perform when, they, when their job comes, when, when, when you're called on to do it. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's the kind of misnomer is that some people just rolled out of bed and became a firefighter. Like for me personally, <laughs> yeah. I was an athlete my whole life. And when I yeah. was in, in uh, fire academy, I was working in a publishing company, would work out in the YMCA on my lunch break, would run um, like four and a half mile laps. It doesn't matter, you know, come rain or shine. Um, you know, would do push-ups and pull-ups and all these things. And I was already in shape, but I understood that mm -hmm. to become a good firefighter, again, I wanted to be the best version of myself. So you leave the bar where it is and you invite people to reach that bar. And I think a real yeah. important part too is is the mentorship programs. One of my friends has one here in, uh, in Ocala and that is how you also address the diversity issue then. There are underserved communities. There are, you know, genders that historically weren't empowered mm -hmm. to believe they could be a firefighter or a police officer. So you reach into those communities, you remove the barriers to entry, and you train up of those communities the best candidates. You don't just scoop a bunch of people of a certain gender or skin color yeah. and say, congratulations, you're all firefighters. You <laughs> empower people of those areas to be the best version of themselves and become incredible firefighters to stand alongside everyone else. I, and that's something that as I went on my, in my career and moved up ranks, more so outside of, of New York City, because I only made it to lieutenant in, in New York. Um, but I never understood that part of it where, um, you know, the neighborhoods that, that I, that I worked in, that people who live in those neighborhoods, those underserved communities never really understood the process of becoming a firefighter. They would see a fire truck all the time, but had no idea how to become a firefighter where somebody from the suburbs who might be a volunteer firefighter or somebody who has a family or a friend on the fire department knew exactly how to do that process. And it was just trying to, um, trying to figure out how to show people in, in those communities that this is how you go about the process. That doesn't mean that they're, we still want to have the best, 
um, but their access to it, which was really hard for me to understand. You know, how do you walk into a firehouse and say, how do I become a fireman? You know, I just didn't, I didn't understand that at first, but, you know, moving more to an administrative role and um, in, in North Charleston, where I, I, I worked for six years when I, after I retired from New York, it's the same type of community. You know, there are some very underserved communities uh, in this city, you know, and you try to recruit, you know, um, uh, but it, but it's just trying to get that word out there uh, to, to people, you know, how do I, how do I do this? You know, and to give them the opportunity to be able to see how they do it. Well, a theme that comes up over and over again, and I'm realizing it more and more is that as a profession, we do a horrible job of branding. Of, of educating people on what we do, especially, I mean, I know, you know, you're getting closer to the EMS side as well, but a lot of the, the rest of the country, I'm sure Charleston was like this, we're a combination fire and EMS. And in 2023, mm -hmm. the number of times people say, oh, why is there a fire engine at my mother's exactly. heart attack? Yeah. Well, that shows yeah. that we've done a piss poor job of educating job of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then you expect someone who doesn't have a fire family or doesn't have that kind of natural pipeline into uniform to understand how to go through that process when even your average American has no idea what a firefighter does as far as EMS, as far as their work week. And, you know, we're mm -hmm. still in their minds playing cards, petting a Dalmatian and, and smoking cigars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, or join, join a fire department. You only work once every three days and you get to sleep at night. What a great job. Exactly. You know, which is, yeah. And is that what we really want everybody to perceive it to be? You know, where, um, you know, again, and, you know, I called for an ambulance. I didn't call, I didn't call for a fire truck. You know, people not understanding that, um, you know, that a lot of apartments, uh, BLS or ALS are going to give the same, uh, the same treatment to the patient. They just can't drive them in the fire truck. They have to wait for the transport unit to get there. But yeah, it's a, but, but going back to James, you know, there's a part of us that, don't want anybody outside of our community to understand what it is that we do, you know, because there's definitely parts of it where, um, you know, I'm trying to think of now, is it history or tradition? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write, I'm going to write that down because that's something that I'm always going to talk about now. You know, um, do we want them to know, you know, what it is that, that we do sometimes? You know, there, there's also that thing where uh, I ran the, uh, the um, joint recruit school uh, down here. Charleston Fire Department has their own recruit school. And at the time, North Charleston would run a training a recruit school, but all the surrounding other departments would, would send their people there. And there's part of you that want to go in the first day and tell them these blood and gut stories about how, you know, but you don't want to lose good people just by scaring them like that as well, because we can train them to be able to perform in situations like that. And then going back to training again, I six years in training down here, um, got disappointed a lot where it wasn't realistic. You know, how do you prepare somebody um, to being, you know, how do you prepare somebody to go into a fire building, you know, when the only time they've ever done it was in a concrete building with two pallets and a bale of hay. You know, and then you tell them not to put the fire out because it's going to be too hard to light again. You know, there again goes to that muscle memory. You know, I was always told that, you know, 
you know, you open up the nozzle and you don't close it until the officer tells you, you know, um, where, you know, now it's like, uh, you know, you have, uh, you go to training now and, you know, it's, it's hit it twice and then, you know, and then it, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And the whole, one of the big things now too is the stress inoculation part of it too, you know, where we don't, we're not allowed to hurt anybody's feelings, but the stress that they're going to encounter in the real world is so much far beyond anything that I can give. You know, I, I can't be a grieving mother who hands you their child when their child stops breathing. You can't, I, I can't, I, I can't portray that as well as a mother actually handing you her child. You know, and yet we're not allowed to, uh, we're not allowed to, sometimes bring more realistic training to our people so that they are able to, you know, the whole fight, flight, or freeze thing, you know, where, um, you know, I've seen it, I've seen it happen. I've had it happen to myself, you know, uh, you know, at the Black Sunday fire, it actually happened to me where um, at one point uh, at the fire, we were trying to take care of the guys. Um, one of the guys from my company is like, Hey, Steve, snap out of it. You know, um, I had to get shaken a little bit to, you know, realize that, you know, you can't, you, you can't teach, you can't teach that, you know, as much as you can train somebody to a certain point, I guess the military does some stuff like this. And again, on combat, that book is amazing. I, I go back to the one part where it's more for police and police and fire and military, not so much firefighters, but the old school police officers that used to police their brass, you know, when they would go for, for training, you know, they'd pick up their brass and put, and, and put the shells in their pockets where, you know, how many times has a police officer, you know, from the old days, not so much anymore, you know, was found dead with shells in his pockets because that's the way they trained, uh, you know. Uh, so again, I, I, go, I go all over the place with stuff like this. And, you know, cause I'm, I'm really, I'm really about the training, you know, and, and you really try and make, things as realistic as possible um but sometimes i i I personally think that we're making the fire service so safe that um when people aren't actually learning how to do their job and when they're called upon to do their job they have never performed at that level before and they really don't know what to do you know and civilians could get hurt or the firefighters could get hurt or themselves get hurt or even killed so I feel really strongly about it, which is one of the reasons why I retired from New York was I felt like I couldn't do it anymore. Well, it should be hard. When I first got hired, my, my first department was Hialeah, which is in the Miami area, just north of Miami. And it was a just a twist of fate. I was hired in a non-certified program, but about half of us were already certified firefighters and EMTs or paramedics. So they sent the other half through the entire school, so EMT school and then fire school. And so they had us for basically three months to kick the shit out of us. So they made up all these scenarios and it was incredible. Like even the PT, you know, the first week was just gym gear. And then you started adding on pieces of bunker gear. So by the end, you're doing all this PT with, you know, full bunker gear, SCBA on air, you know, pull-ups and push-ups and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it was phenomenal. And my God, did it set the bar for the rest of my career. 
but we would do you know all that pt and then go through a collapse maze and people were puking in their masks they set these basically unwinnable scenarios so you would fail after fail after fail and you know guys would have double double bags you know one bag in each arm at the end you know just phenomenal but that really like i said set me up for success we searched so much i could see a room just by doing a primary search over and over again and even the drill tower they had a shitload of furniture it was wireframe furniture so they would clutter a room and you'd have to work on hose management and then i went to the next one which was anaheim which was a great great department but their hose management was shit because they hadn't drilled that portion so you know when you've got a two-story apartment within a berm building and they've got stairs and closets and you know couches and dining room tables and all that stuff all of a sudden it's a completely different scenario versus as you just said the last apartment I worked at, you know, even that burning bale of hay was terrifying for some of those firefighters, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. so, and now you're in this and it's like you're back in kindergarten when you just graduated high school. And it's so maddening to kind of, you understand that we are so fucking far away from where you need to be. And you, this, yeah. this scenario, particularly, you are the biggest target hazard on certainly American soil, if not in a, you know, on the planet, as far as terrorism and was so ill-prepared so that's what i found just maddening yeah it, it, again going back going back to training and um you know seeing differences don't get me wrong you know new york city is the biggest largest busy, probably busiest fire department but not everybody in the new york city fire department was an amazing firefighter you know um again there were neighborhoods that didn't do a, a lot so they didn't train a lot uh, it but that's every fire department in the country. It's not specific to, you know, um, it's not specific to New York City. It, it's any, it's Hialeah or Anaheim or North Charleston or any, anywhere down here. Um, you really have to, um, you know, dedicate yourself to the, to learn and to learn in the, it's a constant learning process. So, um, there Somebody said to me a long time, if there's 10 things that you're supposed to do to fire, you know, and you go to a fire and you do five of them, you know, 50% isn't, isn't that good. But what you do with it after that is the most important, you know, because you go, all right, I did this, 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 and this. I forgot to do these five things. And then the next opportunity you have to go do it, you know, you might do six things, but you forgot one of the first, you know, out of the five that you did at the first fire, you forgot doing one of them, but you did two new things. You know, it's always a process. Crawl, walk, run is an, is another, uh, um, the way I like to trade with people. You know, you, you don't put on bunker gear and SCBA and have somebody force a door right away. You have to teach them, you know, the whys, the, the why of it um, and, and the mechanics of it. And, you know, so you do a lot of stuff in uh, with just a helmet and gloves on at first, you know, and then you move into the bunker gear and then you move into the SCBA. You, you have to, I, I used to, you know, trying to explain to, you know, you were already trained and you had this other group of people um, that, you know, civilians in uniform, they, they used to call them. Um, but they're not, at, you just have to do it repetition by repetition. Another quote, amateurs do things till they get it right. Professionals do things till they get, they can't get it wrong. You know, I try to explain to new recruits again, that was for six years, that was such a part 
that was my job was coordinating the recruit school down here and to try and get them to understand that firefighting is a team sport, you know, and then you look at professional athletes, you know, they prepare all week for 60 minutes, you know, of actual, you know, uh, uh, football players, you know, they watch film all day long, uh, all week long, you know, to be able to prepare for that game. And even before the game, you know, you watch the wide receivers, they'll catch uh, hundreds of passes even before the game even starts. You know, you have to get to a point where it just, again, becomes second nature, where you're just not um, taking, taking this leadership class and it had this matrix and everything, but um, uh, conscious and unconscious, competent and incompetent, you know, uh, where you want to get to a point where you have unconscious competence, where you're not thinking about anything that is you're doing, but you're really good at it. Yeah, well, I think that's where the critical thinking comes in. You know, if, if you're focusing on, like you said, forcing a door, you're not thinking about is someone behind the door? Am I going to sweep? You know, you're already thinking about the, the layout in your mind. Okay, there is no no room to the right. I've got to go to the left. Go to you know, the left, yeah. Yeah, you know, is it a bedroom to the left? Is that a kitchen? You know, so you're able to kind of open your mind a little bit and then be open to, you know, radio traffic and that kind of thing. If you haven't forced that kind of door before and you're so focused on that, you know, that becomes your world. And it may be, that you're, you know, fumbling with a door and there's a massive window next to you that you could have just broken and walked straight <laughs> in. So, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, that's the other thing with, with the EMS side too. We have what they call the cookbook medics. Yeah, that would just do exactly what the page said. Well, to me, you know, if you train diligently and you understand the why behind some of this paramedicine, now you can critically think. Because I had some patients that it was like an episode of House, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's that's an interesting House. That was quite an interesting show. <laughs> well, you t you mentioned the Black Sunday fire. So one of the the biggest, you know chest beating moments is to call yourself a black cloud you know a lot of us have that for the fire sadly i had that you know for losing patients as well it was a black cloud on the negative side you've had that element when it comes to line of duty deaths as well and being present so if you want to kind of walk me through chronologically the first time that you lost a firefighter and then we'll just go through 9-11 black sunday and and onwards yeah well uh so 9-11 was first you know it was uh um september 11 2001 um, I lost six guys from my firehouse um, that day. Um, uh, Lieutenant Mike Healy, Bobby Hamilton, uh, Bruce Van Hine, Greg Sikorsky, Mike Lyons, and Tommy Cullen. Um, and all six guys that were working that day, you know, uh, didn't come back. But that was, you know, what a day. You know, sometimes I don't even know how to, how to talk about it, but um, I wasn't working, you know. Um, it was Tuesday, you know, if it was Sunday or Wednesday, it would have been me that didn't, that didn't come home. Um, you know, so that whole, that whole process, you know, I didn't see the buildings come down. I didn't see, um, I didn't see them actually, uh, get hit until, you know, later that night where I actually saw it on TV. Um, but which I think for, for me personally has a lot to do with my, lessening a survivor's guilt because I really had no idea what had actually happened. Um, but it was more for me, it was more about the nine months that we spent trying to find people 
you know, and the things that we saw, uh, the, the things that we saw during that time, you know, so realizing that your rear aren't going to find anybody, you know, that was, uh, you know, when is it going to be a recovery as opposed to still trying to be a rescue, you know, um, the amount of damage that was, that was down there, just looking at some of the pictures and not being able to believe that, you know, these two 110 story buildings, you know, pretty much fell within that footprint, you know, not, and not far, you know, they could have knocked over another way and took out a whole bunch of other buildings, which part of the damage from the other buildings was actually, um, if we get to talk about it, um, the Deutsche Bank building um, was, uh, was one of the fatal fires that I was at. And um, that all had to do with it being damaged after September 11th. Um, but, well, but going back to, you know, you, you think that something like September 11th could be the worst thing in your career. And then in January 23rd, 2005, um, and I hate Black Sunday. I, I think that I hated, <clears throat> excuse me, I hated uh, uh, Ground Zero. You know, I think those are the terms that the media put on it, which I really didn't care for. Um, Cause it's called Black Sunday because three firefighters died at two separate fires in New York. You know, two guys died, um, you know, uh, Lieutenant Myron and John Ballou died at the fire in the Bronx. And then Rich Sclafani from, from Ladder 103 died in a fire in Brooklyn on the same day. So that was the front page of the newspaper, you know, um, you know, Black Sunday. So, um, but I call it the 170 HP fire because that's, because that's where it was. And, um, you know, I, I, again, you think that, that, uh, you know, September 11th could be, you know, the worst thing that ever happened in your career. And then going to that fire and witnessing some of those things was, was, uh, was, um, weighed on me a lot as well. Well, well, I've had a lot of people talk about their 9-11 experience and as you mentioned you weren't there you know for that moment actually even uh, chief norman that was a really powerful conversation because he was a fire inspector when that was being built and then ended up becoming a firefighter and then you know saw the very towers that he you know witnessed being built and the 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 kind of backstory behind the shortcuts from the fire protection that ultimately resulted in the collapse so it was a really interesting perspective um but when it comes to the the 178th street fire um that sadly sent ripples through the fire service and then also more so with the bailout rope discussion, you know, following that. So talk to me about that day through your eyes. So that, cause a lot of people haven't really heard that particular story because there are, you know, the, the Charleston fire and nine 11 are some of the biggest ones that are discussed a lot. I, I, I think like most, if you, if you read a fail, fatal fire report, it's not one thing, you know, it's a bunch of dominoes that one thing happens and another thing happens. It was just a series of things that weren't going right at this fire. Um, you know, there was a blizzard the night before there was 18 inches of snow on the ground, you know, the side streets weren't, weren't paved. Um, there was a, um, uh, ladder 27 who should have been first to the way that they came in, they were blocked by an oil truck making the delivery, um, for for uh, heating fuel in a building, so which switched the positions. Um, Twenty seven should have been on the fire floor, and ladder thirty three should have been on the floor above, which meant those guys would have had to jump out the window if everything worked out. Probably the hydrant right in front of the building was frozen, which led to 
there having to be a relay, which to be quite honest with you, we weren't very good at doing something like that. You know, again, New York City doing things specific, 99% of the time, the engine is parked right on the hydrant and we're stretching the hose off the back. You know, we're not doing a forward leg, you know, laying 800 feet of five inch hose. Um, and, um, you know, the, the loss of water, um, uh, the losing pressure. Well, uh, if, again, I've, I've listened to that audio a couple hundred times. I'm actually, I do a presentation on it. Um, I'm doing one on Friday uh, for the Somerville Fire Department um, during their, their Firefighter Survival Week. Um, and to talk about, um, you know, what happened with that, the difference between uh, burst length and lost pressure, you know, and, and how the, the, the chauffeur or engineer or whatever it is that in, in your area call the guy that drives the fire, the fire engine um, knew exactly what was going on and was trying to fix things um, and tried to take care of it. But, you know, whatever happened, probably the, the other biggest thing at that fire was the, the illegal wall um, that they built, you know, um, you know, SROs, single room occupancies, where, um, you know, a landlord will have a three, uh, a three bedroom apartment. Uh, but in this specific apartment, they built a wall uh, in the living room, which made two extra bedrooms. So instead of getting $1,500 a month for an apartment, you can get $500 a month for each room. And if you have five bedrooms, you're making an extra $1,000 a month, um, which was probably the premise on that, which, um, uh, but this, this illegal wall that they built um, uh, blocked these guys' uh, path to the room that had the fire escape in it, which is why um, one of the reasons why they had to jump out the window. Well, you talked about the fight, flight, or freeze element. And, you, know, you were frozen at that moment. I've had that. You know, I've been handed a, a dead baby, a lifeless baby before, and it took a few moments to, to go ABCs. It's amazing. Those acronyms are super helpful when you're in that, mm -hmm. that frozen state. Um, talk to me about through your eyes. That was the kind of logistics of the fire. Walk me through, you know, you standing there on the fire ground. And that that's, you know, to say it just like that, that's what wound up happening. Um at that point, we were given an assignment um, to stretch a, to, the, the thing that was, um, there's different about squad 41. When you operate as a squad company uh, in New York, you have uh, first, second, and third do engine assignments. You had dual positions. And then when you went to work in fire in your response area, 95% of the time you're doing truck work. So you were carrying tools. So we responded as a squad on the 1075 and when we got there, we reported in with tools. Um, when we were uh, given an assignment, we were given uh, to stretch the third, a third line. At some point during the fire, um, we were given a different assignment to leave the hose line there and to help civilians that were evacuating um, uh, from the front and the top floor. If you was, James, standing in front of the, the fire building, well, the fire was in the rear, um, you would ne you never know that there was a fire in this building just by standing in front of it. Um, so uh, uh, I was on the front fire escape um, helping the civilians down uh, when the, when the mayday came out. So came down off the fire escape um, and started making my way. It was a four story building, 
uh, in the front. It was five stories in the rear. Um, and the fire was on the third floor and the guys on the floor above um, were the ones that had to jump out. So when they jumped out the window, they actually fell five floors. Uh, five of them did. Actually, this is part of the story. One guy only fell four floors. Uh, so as I was running down the, the Bravo side or New York uses numbers, I was running towards the Bravo Charlie corner and there was an officer uh, and you can hear it. You can hear it on the audio. He's yelling um, uh, 35 to the rear rope on the roof, 35 to the rear. He's looking up at these guys in the top floor, uh, the Charlie, um, the Charlie side in the top floor window, um, getting ready to jump out. And as I ran down the Bravo side, I, I could see him in my sight and about 10 feet before I got to him, a big black blob fell in front of me. And I was like, this is really odd. They're overhauling during a mayday until I realized it was a fireman. You know, a fireman had fell right, right in front of me. Um, and again, not, you know, this is where part of that comes into, I just wanted to help the guy. So that was Jeff Cool. And Jeff Cool wound up because he was the only guy with the rope. Um, so Jeff kind of pendulumed um, from the window and, and landed one floor above everybody else. And uh, I grabbed him by the shoulder straps and he let out a horrific scream and a couple of choice words. And, and again, you know, triage, that's the only thing in my mind, right? He's talking, so he's alive. So I went around the corner and looked uh, in the Charlie side. And again, one of those things that'll never, the contrast to the black gear and all the snow on the ground, uh, the pass alarms going off, uh, the steam coming off these guys. That's something that I'll never, I'll, I'll never get out of my head. Um, but one of the, one of the, you know, to get into real detail with that is that we had a, a, a guy, he was brand new in the company. He was about three weeks in the company, but he was a paramedic. His name is Jenny DeShulo. And um, when the guys jumped out the window, the first guy that I got to was Lieutenant Myron. And, I looked at him, he looked deceased to me, but right next to me, to my left was Jimmy DeShulo and he started taking patient care on Gene Stolowski. Um, Gene uh, wound up having an internal decapitation. If you, did you ever talk to any of those guys, Jeff Cool or, or Gene Stolowski or? I haven't yet. I know um, Will um, Hedgehouse was going to try and connect me with one of the, the guys that was on the scene. I, I don't remember which one it was though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so Jimmy being this trained paramedic, the first thing that Jimmy did was he, um, he did a jaw thrust on, on Gene. And I actually watched Gene come back to life. I watched him start to breathe. I could see the breath come out of his mouth. So I did that to Myron and nothing happened. So we just put him on a backboard. And again, just trying to, the thing that we should have done, you know, and Jimmy being a fantastic paramedic that he is, he was taking care of the stabilization. You know, they packaged him so well. Again, he had an internal decapitation. His spinal column was severed, uh, not his cord because he, he's not deficient there. But um, when they took the collar off him in the hospital, his head turned 90 degrees. So looking to see what Jimmy did, and Jimmy kept, uh, kept patient care with him, I went to Myron and we kind of just threw him on a backboard and got him around. When I came back around the second time, 
um, I, I got to John Ballou, who was the other firefighter um, that died that day. And um, I leaned over him and that's the first time I froze. You know, meanwhile, everything that's going on, I remember seeing somebody almost in a fetal position screaming and yelling, I can't do this, I can't do this. Um, you know, and now I'm standing over this, this second fireman down and um, froze, actually froze for a moment until one of the other firefighters from my company was like, hey, Steve, snap out of it. Let's take care of this guy. And then I get back into it again, you know, and, uh, um, you know, and started taking care of him. And I, I struggled for a really, really, really long time that I didn't do enough to help, to help John Ballou. Uh, if I would have done a couple more things, maybe he would have survived that fire. But that goes back, you know, with a lot of the um, the incidents and second guessing and and everything that we do is what it could have should have. Um, the one of the the biggest things from that fire, you know, not only seeing the things that happen, but living for such a long time with, you know, what if I did this for Baloo? you know, what I've been able to help him and I, to go ahead of it um, a little bit, because it's kind of a pretty amazing story is that um, September 10th, 2020, uh, North Charleston had a firefighter that took his own life. Um, about a month after that, Charleston Fire Department had a firefighter that took their own life. And Charleston Fire Department, who, who, um, has a, a strong union at the North Charleston didn't have theirs yet, but they had IFF uh, peer team members come to Charleston um, to talk to the whole department about, about what happened. Um, and um, it was two guys from Texas and two guys from New York. Uh, so I wanted to go see my New York. I'm starting to lose my accents, you know, so I wanted to hang out with my boys, you know, get the accent going, my sloppy English going again. And uh, I went out to dinner with, with them on a, um, one of the nights. And I sat in between a dinner, sat in between the two New York City peer counselor guys. Um, however, we got on topic. Um, the guy sitting to the right of me was a very close friend of Lieutenant Myron, the first firefighter that I got to at the fire. And the guy sitting to the left of me was Dan Ballou, the brother of John Ballou, the other firefighter. It was like it was supposed to happen, James, you know? And I was able to say to Dan, you know, told my part of that story. And he, you know, he gave me some closure on it, you know, validity, um, I guess, uh, whatever word it is you want to use. But, you know, Steve, I know you did everything you could that day. And um, to be able to hear that took a lot of weight off my shoulders after, you know, it's 15 years, 15 years later. So. Well, that underlines something that I've talked about quite a bit when it goes back to the training as well. If we lose someone, whether it's someone that we're responding to, whether it's, God forbid, you know, one of our brothers or sisters, but we know that we train diligently, I think that helps you appease that that guilt. But if you are in a department where the standards are low and you're not training the way you're supposed to, and maybe your your ownership of your own trade isn't as strong as it needs to be, Another layer of why you should train on top of all the things we've already discussed is, God forbid, you lose someone and you know in your heart of hearts that they died because you were out of shape, because you didn't train diligently. 
that's something that you know I think will be a crushing weight and be extremely hard to to take through your life. And and that right there is probably the main the biggest reason that I retired was because I got to a point in my career where I felt like I wasn't a hundred percent. I felt like I couldn't do the job as as well as I could. Um, you know, body is fairly beat up from twenty years. Um, you know, the trade center has some effects on me um, right now. Um, but I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if, if I was at a fire and something happened, somebody got in trouble and I wasn't able to perform to help them get out of trouble and they got seriously injured or died. Or on the other side, if because I wasn't in shape, I put myself in a position where I needed help and then somebody trying to get me was either seriously injured or died. I'm trying to get me out because I wasn't 100%. I would never have been able to live with myself. So that had a lot to do with why I retired. Yeah, well, I mean, kudos for you for making that decision because I think a lot of people are chomping at the bit when we first get into the career. But what really breaks my heart is, you know, 15 years in, people have, some people have, you know, countdown apps on their phone. Oh, only 13 more years. <laughs> you know, that that tells me you should probably be thinking about transitioning yeah. out now, you know. So for me, the universe sent me in these bizarre directions and creation of this podcast and the force multiplier element I realized I'd probably be able to do more good in the fire service and outside doing this and having people like yourself on and thousands of people get to listen rather than running one call at a time. Because the moment I'm gone, a fresh set of legs is going to walk right through the door and take my place anyway. Thousands of people, really? Yeah, thousands. No pressure. All right, now you're putting pressure on me now. <laughs> um, it, that makes me think about, um, you know, again, uh, you know, again, I can go off in so many different places, but uh, I know you're a big fan of Simon Sinek, um, who is, I love his books, but one of my favorite books for him is called Infinite Game. And it talks about how, you know, there's a finite game and an infinite game. And, you know, we live in a world that's, that's an infinite game. It's like you just said, it's going on and on and on. You know, it's not a sporting event where, you know, there's a time limit and whoever has the most points at the end wins. You know, we have to get better and better every day and make it better for the next person because it's infinite. It just keeps going on and on. You know, you're doing the great things that, that you're doing, you know, somewhere along the line, you know, when you retire, somebody needs to continue something like this. And that's where, how I feel with training and why I retired um, to go become a training officer was I learned from some amazing, amazing people. You know, and I truly feel that if, you know, everything that they taught me, it's my obligation to pass on to the next, the next generation. And then the next generation, it, again, it's infinite. And if I, I don't pass on what I, it's almost a crime, you know, because the things that I was able to learn from these guys that worked such during such a busy time and in their careers that learned so much from their experience, um, you know, that, it's funny if, if we get to it, one of those things came into play with one of the next fatal fires that I went to. Um, but I think we're going to get to that later, but I, I'm all for um, passing on what it is that we learned, you know, and, and now, but, you know, I'm in a generation where we didn't have podcasts, you know, um, you had to read a book or, you know, or go to a class or, you know, 
the technology nowadays has opened up in a good way and a bad way. You know, in a good way, it's, it's exposed us to a lot of things that we would never seen before. But in a bad way, it's made some people really a lot more confident than they should be in some of their firefighting skills. Absolutely. So just one more thing with the 178th fire. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've got this image in my mind of what I thought was a documentary telling that story and of a firefighter who initially survived the fall but ended up passing away months or years yeah. later. So uh, talk to me about that because that was such a heartbreaking thing that he made it there, but it seemed like he struggled so much mentally with that as well. Yeah, so that um, so that's a whole other story. And, and again, how everything connects. Um, that firefighter was uh, Joey DiBernardo, also from Rescue 3, um, who was in the, he was in the window in the Charlie Bravo corner. And Jeff Cool was in the window directly to his right. And we, uh, FDNY had personal ropes years ago, but uh, they were, and this, and this is, you know, not only Jeff Cool's passion now, but also the family of Joey DiBernardo, who runs a foundation that will buy personal ropes for, for firefighters. Cause that whole PSS system came, came after that fire. So we had had ropes that were not very efficient, that were very heavy and bulky, um, and they were taken away from us by the commissioner at the time. We said, well, we never use them, so we don't need them. So, um, but um, there was a fair amount of guys that carried their own ropes, whether they were into rock climbing or anything. You know, I carried a, a, a 50 foot piece of uh, Kermantle, um, I think it was seven or eight millimeter rope stuffed in my pocket with a beaner on it. That's pretty much what Jeff had. So Jeff is in the next window over from the, the Bravo corner. And he yelled to Joey to his left and said, Joey, I have, I have a rope, but I have nothing to tie it off to. So Joey said to Jeff, um, throw me the rope and I'll lower you down. And Jeff said, I'm not throwing you my rope, Joe. And, and Joey said to Jeff, throw me a rope. You got kids, I'll lower you down. So somehow or another, Jeff got his rope to his left, gave uh, Joey D his rope. And I believe that's what happened Why Jeff, because when Jeff came out the window, he actually had to climb over an air conditioner with fire blown out over his head. Um, and when he, when he bailed out the window, he kind of pendulumed, uh, which was what made him land on the Bravo side one story less um, than everybody else. But you know, again, Joey saved Jeff's life. Um, you know, the injuries that those guys had were, were horrendous. Um, uh, Joey pretty much broke, I don't, I don't know exactly, but broke a lot of bones below his waist. Uh, he wound up not coming back, uh, not coming back to work. Uh, he wound up getting promoted, which was awesome. Um, but I guess there, uh, I don't want to say it wrong because I don't want to, I believe that there was some mix up with the medication that he was taking, um, which again, how many years later, um, uh, there was something with the med, with the medication. So. And is that what, what he came to originally then or ultimately? Yeah. It was, uh, due to the injuries from the fire, he was on a whole bunch of different medications and there was some type of mix up. It, it was out there at one point that he had taken his own life and 
that's that's not true. That, that is that's not what happened. It was something um, from what I understand um, with with medication. So. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the problem. Is that I think there's there's been a lot of accidental overdose, especially with this fentanyl that's coming out now. You know, and, and that interaction with the drugs, and you know, whether it's an actual deliberate suicide or whether it's you know the the leaning into medication and the accidental overdose. I mean, these are all part of this, the same thing. You know, we've got to take care of our men and women when they're wounded. The, the physical wounds but also the mental wounds because mm. i can tell you and this is minor compared to the injuries that we're talking about in the moment but when i hurt my back in in my fire service career the pain was was horrible of course but it was the mental element you one minute you were wearing this gear and rocking up to structure fires and cutting people out of cars and now mm. you can't even pick up your child or put your shoes on yeah. i mean it was yeah. it was crushing so i think that's a that's a very uh uh, under discussed element that you know alcohol all these drugs it's not a deliberate thing but you know if if we were leaning in all these these um, opiates and things that we're being prescribed that if we're not careful these things that these physicians think are going to help us actually end up being something that hurts us yeah and that's something i just want to be clear that i'm you know i don't i'm not a doctor i don't know how joey died but i know that it was um that it was out there um, that he had taken his own life, but from what I was told and understand, it was that that wasn't the case. Yeah, so. well, I, I appreciate you telling your story because I, again, I couldn't put the name to the face initially, so yeah. so thank you for that. Um, well, then, sadly, that is not the end of the line of duty deaths that you you had to witness. So, kind of walk me through the next one. Yeah, about about a year and a half later, um, I was paying back a tour and wound up working in Rescue Three in the Bronx, and we went to a, a single story commercial fire 99 cent store and um uh a lieutenant and a probie died at that fire as well um uh, howie carplunk was working overtime and set and 75 engine and mike riley um was a probie and he was just a couple weeks out of out of recruit school um and uh there was a collapse of the floor um they went into the basement um and there were there were uh four other members uh, collapsed. One of them got out pretty quickly. Three, it took about, they were trapped from the waist down. Um, but, uh, uh, Mike Riley fell into a hole and the lieutenant fell on top of, on top of him. And it took about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes or so to be able to remove everybody. So, but that goes, my, my, uh, um, my experience at that fire goes back to something again, where listening to stories, I had had, uh, um, I had had um, the saw position in Rescue Three, and we were we were up on a roof, and we had finished cutting the roof, and um, my foot sunk into uh, sunk into the tar, and I had one of those moments where you know my brain waves are firing, and like this is not good. I don't know why, you know, and it went back to you know I need to tell somebody because um, it's somebody that told me something ten years ago, uh, and I turned around and my Lieutenant from squad 41, Mickey Convoy, um, who, uh, but actually I was working in rescue three that day. He was looking away. He had his back to me with thermal imaging camera. And I yelled to him. I'm like, I said, Hey Lou. And then he just turned around and said, everybody off the roof. Um, and he got about 14 guys off the roof and, and later on the roof wound up collapsing, you know? Um, and a couple minutes after that was the floor collapse when the May days. And again, 
what what we did at that point wound up getting into the basement to try and uh, we spent a long time trying uh, uh, moving debris that we thought was a firefighter that wound up not being. And that's just another one of those things that, that, you know, where you second guess yourself, you know, if I didn't spend that much time wasting time on that, you know, and move to another position, would I have been able to get to them quicker? So, which, you know, that's just the way we look at it because they wound up removing them from the top. You know, I don't think there would have been a way for us to get to them in the basement, but that's just the way, the way you think, you know, so I struggled with that for a while too. What would the uh, lesson learned takeaways from that fire? Uh, a, a lot of different, a lot of different things. The, the two things that I've learned in the fires that I've been involved in and uh, a majority of the, the fatal fire reports that um, it has to do with two things. It has to do with building construction and it has to do with the water. You know, if there's a loss of water, um, we can't put the fire out. Um, you know, in uh, the 178th Street fire, it was both those things. You know, there was a problem getting water on the fire and they built this one wall. The, um, uh, the second fire, uh, uh, the Walton Avenue fire, um, the building was so old and had been had so many fires and it had been renovated so many times, it was just weren't structurally sound. And with all the debris, with all the stock from these 99 cent stores, it was on top of unstable foundation. And then all the water that was added to put the fire out, the floor collapsed. So in those two things, it's usually it's water supply or something to do with building construction. Yeah, it's so sad. We lost to um, Aldridge and Bench here in Florida in the 90s. And it was a it's kind of similar thing. It wasn't a 99 cent store, but it was a t-shirt store. And ironically, it was actually in my, just outside my first gym, in the very last place that I worked. And it's still a t-shirt store today. But they went in, you talked about the 178th seemingly, you know, clear conditions on that one side. That's what they went into. But this place had stored so much stock above them that uh, that's where the fire was that everything collapsed one engineer managed to actually get out he slammed his uh, scba through a window and was able to get through that way but uh yeah the two men were killed and if you see placards now i don't know if they're national but certainly in florida here you'll have an r or an f for roof oh, or for floor the yeah, that, yeah that's the origin the story of that placard yeah yeah um again the the building for this fire was so old um it um it was dimensional lumber um, but the the, um, the renovations and the um, it just it was subpar, you know. They kind of just like it was like a puzzle in some places. They just stuck pieces of wood, pieces of wood into you know to hold the load at some points. Yeah, well, this is the thing it comes up a lot in conversation with modern construction too. I mean, it's built to to stand up but it's not built to withstand fire. So, I mean, some of these crazy, you know, wood trusses that are being built these days, you look at it in the construction phase, you're like, this is just a pallet. This is what we used to train in the fire building. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, going back to the point where, you know, what I did in New York was very different than firefighting down in South Carolina. You know, we fought fires in, you know, a hundred year old buildings that had true dimensional lumber, you know, where, um, you know, in you know small town USA or wherever it is, you know there's built there, everything that they're building now is is truss, you know lightweight construction, you know uh, two by four trusses, laminated laminated I beam, uh, lamb beams, um, wooden I beams, 
you know, that are, that use glue to put everything together. It's really, you know, the engineers tell us that it's stronger, um, but it's, it, they're firefighter killers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, I wish that was the last, you know, line of duty death that you witnessed, but I know there's more. So walk me through the next one. Yeah, that was, um, so that was uh, August 27th, uh, 2006. And then uh, less than a year, less than a year after that, on August 18th, 2007, um, we were doing a, a confined space standby right outside. We shouldn't even even been there. Um, nowhere near our response area, but it was the Deutsche Bank building that was because it was so damaged on 9-11. Years later, they started to deconstruct it um, floor by floor and because of the, uh, uh, the asbestos abatement. And again, um, one of the things water supply in that fire is the contractors cut the standpipe lines in the basement so that they could run, you know, run uh, electric and pneumatic cords um, through the standpipes. Um, so when uh, the engine companies um, hooked up to the Siamese to supply the standpipe system, the water was just flowing into the basement. So there was no way to get water on the on the uh, on the upper floors, and um, that fire again is different. Although it was uh, um, th- my third fatal fire, where two more firemen died, um, uh, uh, Robert Padilla and, and and Joe Graffinino. Um, uh, one was from twenty four engine, and one was from from five truck. What happened with that? We we were listening to the whole thing going on, and we eventually um, uh, I don't know the exact amount, but again, listen to that audio. There's like twenty or thirty something maydays and a whole bunch of urgent messages. Um, but one of the things that we didn't um, stop the people that, that we were standing by for with the confined space it was a private company, and um, went and got an assignment later on where. Um, the guys had already come down that they had found the two firefighters and already come down. But what we did at that fire and the way, again, probably had a lot more information than everybody else did. Um, but when we wound up breaking through the floor uh, and coming out onto the fire floor, um, we came out right where these guys were found. So that second guessing again is, you know, if we would have stopped the workers sooner than we would have gotten an assignment sooner than we would have been on the fire floor sooner. Um, uh, but, you know, there's again, though, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda, um, you know, we can second guess everything that we do all, all the time. But in part though, again, that makes us better because we want to, it's not about what we did wrong. It's about what we can do better the next time, you know, and the value of critiquing fires afterwards. So so that so that uh, um, actually the um, um, the boss, the lieutenant uh, of those two guys, um, wound up retiring through uh, psychological, and then he wound up taking his own life a couple of years, a couple of years later as well. Oh God, yeah. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, the the ripple effects. It's not just the the men and women that we lose it's all the crews and like you said the survivor's guilt and you know especially if you questioned you know now you're in command and you sent someone to do an assignment and you know now you're wondering if you should have sent them and now you lost them so yeah i can see how that would be another layer to that haunting yeah there's there's actually again listening to the audio so many times 
the incident commander, you know, um, gets on the radio numerous times. I, I don't give a shit about the building. I just care about the men. You know, I need accountability, you know, because there were so many guys missing at this fire. You know, again, but there again, not only that fire again, not only was it the water supply that was hindered because they had cut the standpipes, but um, because of the, the, um, uh, the uh, asbestos abatement, um, you know, it was like a maze up there, you know, with plywood walls and the p- material that they used um, for the asbestos abatement and everything. Every, you, you couldn't go floor to floor in the building. You had to take the exterior construction elevator because they had plywooded over the stairwells, the stairs in each stairwell. So that was one of the things where when we gained access to the actual fire floor, um, we had to cut through, cut through holes with uh, sawzalls. Um, and again, you know, having more information than, than the, the, the primary units have, they tried cutting them with, with, uh, with rotary saws, which weren't working because of the smoke condition. Um, so when we got our assignment, we brought our electric sawzalls up um, and we were able to cut through, you know, and again, that was one of the things where I beat myself up for. Like, if we would have done this sooner, this sooner, and this sooner, you know, we would have been in a position to help these guys um, more. But then it's, that's just me, you know, what it could have, should have. Yeah. No, exactly. And I mean, you, 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 I'm painting a picture in my mind of, of what you just described as, as a firefighter. I mean, that must have been an absolute bloody nightmare, you know, just just for the regular operations. But then you have the mayday happen. I mean, you know, now you've got this, you know, rapid extrication needs to happen. And basically none of the tools that you need as far as access and ability to remove the victims. Yeah. And the, the means to, um, again, it's never it's never one thing. It's a um, it's a combination of things. It's all the dominoes, um, you know, again, listening to the audio so many times at that fire, you know, um, so many things went, went wrong. You know, it's not, it's, it's never one thing. So was that the last line of duty death that you witnessed wearing an FDNY uniform? Uh, yes. The last one. <laughs> and I got that funny. Um, so, it kind of ties into what you're talking about with, with Joey earlier. Um, it was around November of 2011. That's when Joey passed away. Um, I was in a, a major crisis with my mental health. Um, uh, my son was young. Um, he was about four years old. And one day my wife was just like, Hey, if you don't do something, I'm leaving and I'm taking the kid. So I drove over to the counseling unit that day. And, um, and I'm, I'm a mess. Uh, um, you know, there was an old, old retired peer counselor there, Bob. He didn't know what to do with me. I'm bowling my eyes out. He's running upstairs to try and get one of the, one of the clinicians. You've got to talk to this guy. Anyway, she was in session. She winds up coming down. I go up and see her. Um, and she's like, all right, come back, come back in a week. All right. So, um, and within that week from that day that I'm in crisis to the next time I see her, that's when Joey D passed away. So I go back to the council and she's like, Oh, how you doing? Um, you know, uh, seems like you're better than you were the last time I saw you. I'm like, well, not really. You know, Joey just passed away, you know, a couple of days ago, you know, and that was another thing that just added on. I call it the box, um, you know, the, the box inside your head that, you know, all that trauma just gets stuck in there. 
And, you know, after a while, if you don't let it out, it overflows. So, and I got a whole theory on that too, which is what led me to peer counseling and stuff. So just before we get to, you know, what worked for you, when you look back, what, how were you presenting? How, you know, what was the lowest point that you got to in this kind of mental health decline? For, for me personally, it was just, I was totally checked out. Um, you know, I know guys that struggled with alcohol, struggle with drugs, with gambling, with um, cheating on their spouses, sex addiction, whatever it is. For me, it was, I had totally checked out on life. Um, I, when I would come home, I would sleep all day long. And to be honest, I, I missed the first couple of years of my son's life, you know, and now it's amazing. I have a tremendous relationship with my son and it's, it's great. So you have this conversation with the counselor. Walk me through your healing journey. There's a lot, a lot of people that have some horror stories first with EAP and some of these other things. What was your journey to, to firstly overcoming some of the things that you were dealing with and then kind of, you know, some of the tools that you were using that, that actually work for you? Yeah, so that has to go all the way back to... Um, um, to like March of 2002, where uh, a lot of people don't, uh, um, the counseling unit for the FDMY on September 11th only had five people. They only had five clinicians because um, it was something that was so different at the time. It was more for the guys who had drug and alcohol problems or got arrested for, you know, um, domestic violence and stuff. That's what it really was for. It wasn't for the post-traumatic stuff. And the counseling unit was so overwhelmed, they started, um, they started hiring counselors outside. Um, and I wound up getting hooked, the guy that was assigned to our firehouse. I wound up seeing him in, in his office, um, along with going through the fire department counseling unit. And uh, therapy and medication is what got, got me through. Um, you know, there's whatever it is that works for you, you have to find out what, what works for you. You know, again, you talk about, you know, I've made therapists cry, you know, telling them, uh, telling them in much more detail than I, you know, that I've told you today. And, you know, if you can't handle what it is that I'm telling you, you're not going to be able to do me any good, um, which leads to the whole peer counseling thing and cultural competency, you know. But I had my therapist tell me once that I had two scenarios left in my career, that I was at a fire where one of my firemen died at or I died in a fire and I really didn't like even one of those scenarios. So, so I retired and got a new job and a new therapist. So, so what was that transition out of FDMY like for you? I know you obviously found yourself in the Charleston area, but, and so, you know, there's an element of, again, refining a tribe, but now you're in a training department, you're with a, you know, a new group of people that you don't know. Was that jarring? Did that compound some of the, the negative things that you were dealing with, or was it a positive thing for you? Uh, well, both, um, because I never realized how bad I was until I removed myself from New York. Um, and then when I took the job down here, I was living down here by myself for eight months and I had stopped therapy and had stopped my medication. And, and um, I had this horrible cycle of when I felt good, I would stop my medicine and then I would feel bad again. So then I'd start my medicine, but every time that cycle went through, I would, I would be worse than the last time. And I was down here by myself, having a, having a hard time, 
again, not going to therapy off my medication. And I wound up getting hooked up with the Low Country Firefighter Support Team, which was started after the Charleston Nine Fire. And just got connected with, connected with them, with Gerald Mishu. And um, it was actually, um, uh, Captain Reindoller was a member of the North Charleston Fire Department at the time. He's since retired. Um, there was a part of the team that directed me towards the team. Um, and again, I, I never realized how, how bad I was. Um, and I've been able to, it hasn't been perfect. You know, it's, it's up and ups and downs all the time, but I have, um, you know, uh, they might disagree sometimes, but I think I have a much better relationship with my wife and my son now. Um, although there was a really big struggle, um, with moving down here. Um, but what led me to, um, to the support team is really what, what helped me. I really wish I would have understood more about my mental health when I was still in New York and to be able to take care of myself up there and to be able to take care of people um, that are dealing with that stuff. Because I moved, it's funny to uh, another amazing tribe. Amazing. I actually wrote down the quote that I, that I have in my presentation, you know, about it and talking about, you know, your small group defined by a clear purpose and understanding, regaining it may be the key to our psychological survival. And the way Sebastian Younger wrote in that book, again, more towards military, but that's why I find the value in peer counseling so strong because we're, it's, it's each other. We're firemen. You know, it's very, you know, you and I have talked like twice, but, you know, because we have that bond of firefighter, you know, we can talk forever, which I think we have. I've been talking for like two hours now already, you know. Well, speaking of that, because I agree completely, it's it's amazing. You know, I think the, the the passionate firefighters, like you said, you walk into a firehouse with a dude that just wants to put his gear on the rig and get through his 24 hours. You're probably not going to have a lot of common with that. But the, no. the person who's there for the right reason, that's a universal type of human being. You come down from New York to the Charleston area. You yourself have been through all these horrific line of duty deaths. You find yourself working close to a department that had one of the most tragic incidences in the fire service as well. Were there, was there any cross-pollination? Did you end up kind of interacting with some of the, the members of Charleston that were at that fire? Yeah, so again, how, how it's really weird how everything interconnects, James. It's... Um, I was working, you know, I worked for, for Aaron with on scene and um, uh, on scene was hired by the Charleston fire department in April of 2010 to do some training for them after, um, after the fire. And we came down, um, you know, Aaron picked a, a couple, couple of instructors to come down and he wanted to be able to relate to what's going on. So he had, um, he had um, myself who had been involved in all this stuff. He had um, Kevin Maloney, who was a, a, a retired district chief in Worcester. So he had the experience with the Worcester fire. And, and um, uh, we'll call him Bart. His name is John, John Simpson, who's a part of the, the, the training company as well, who had an incident. And he's right near you. I think he's, he's uh, um, do you know Bart? That, that name rings a bell. Actually. Yeah, so. he's one of the founding fools. Okay. No. And uh, I'm drawing a blank on, is it Ocala? I'm drawing a blank on the department that he works for. I can't believe it. But he was involved in a training uh, where a lieutenant appropriately died. So 
Aaron wanted to try and oh, it's probably people. Osceola County. We lost Osceola, it, yeah, that's Dallas that's and it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Beg. Yes, um, yeah. Okay, um, I can't believe I, I I couldn't remember where Bart works, um, but he brought us down with the with other people, and again, what happened what happened there was we wound up meeting um, some people, and you know, uh, seven years later, I wound up getting a job down down here. You know, totally. Uh, not you know didn't plan it that way but but that's the way it happened you know yeah i had um travis Howes on the show and then uh, david yes. griffin has also been on as well so you know yes. two very different perspectives of that tragedy yes yeah i've spoken to uh to both of them um uh chief griffin you know i speak to and uh, i actually just ran into travis uh we have a bunch of mutual friends i had met him once but i just ran into travis um the other day like by by a fluke um but uh spoken to uh, chief griffin about you know and again what i'm trying to do now is what they've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years you know a little behind the eight ball but i'm just trying to get that message out about mental health uh, with my story well speaking of that then so tell me about surviving the job so it's it's uh it's the whole story and then i pretty much I told you probably half of it uh, you know the first half is about all the stuff that happened from I was a 17 year old firefighter but the second half of it is how I really dealt with everything um, and it started what I, I didn't know what to do with all with all this stuff and um, another really good friend who's head of the New England Fools Rusty Ricker um, he said you know do you mind talking about this and I put this thing together and then the more I started doing it, the more, um, you know, the more involved in it I got. And it's changed so many different times to include so many different things. Cause I learned something about me every time or somebody that I get to speak to, um, teaches me something about something that relates to this. But what I, what I wanted it to be was that, you know, um, again, the cultural competency, you know, a firefighter talking to other firefighters about mental health and about the stigma of, being in pain and how nobody wants to talk about it, you know? And if, you know, if, if I can be that person where somebody says, you know, that knows me or sees me and it's like, Hey, you know, I'm going through the same thing that Steve is going through and, you know, and if he can deal with it, you know, maybe I should try and do it as well. You know? And then again, that's, that's, it's, again, it's not scientific. I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, um, it, it, it gives that cultural competency aspect of it again, where I'm a fireman talking to firemen, you know, which led me to hopefully in January, I'm going through the process of getting it, uh, starting my master's in psychology because I want to become a counselor now. So, and I'm so, I don't want to say I'm mad, but I wish I'm, I'm going to be 57 years old. Um, I wish I would have understood a lot more of this a lot sooner in my life. So what I would able to, help myself a lot sooner and maybe have avoided some of the mistakes that I made over the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, again, as we talked about the way that you and I were taught about nutrition and training and everything was very different than it is now. And I think this is, is the, that, mm -hmm. an amazing time to become a first responder and it's up to the leaders in all these spaces, nutrition, training, you know, mental health to 
step up and do what you're doing now so that our young recruits can enter this profession understanding you know maybe having some counseling before they enter the fire service addressing Mm -hmm. some things you might be bringing in understanding that it's normal to talk about that that you need to process some of the horrific shit that we see that you know you're part of a tribe and if you find yourself plucked from it that that's going to be detrimental in some way and giving them their tools so they can actually walk through their career Again, as we talked about earlier, with that strong foundation rather than that one that's already cracked. Yeah, making it part of recruit school, just like, you know, recruit school just used to be physical training and then the tactical training. You know, now it's become financial training. You know, it's become mental health training. Um, you know, I, we used to, uh, when I was uh, coordinating a recruit school down here, we introduced yoga one day a week and guys flipped out. You know, because like firemen doing yoga, you know, that's just another one of those things where we've never done it like that before, you know, and I don't want to, it's really, it's helpful if you try it, you know, and again, it's just like talking, I just want people to be able to empty their box, you know, and I strongly feel that talking about all that trauma that's stuffed up inside your head, that because we, we have this. Um, this thing with therapists and clinicians as well, you know, what, they're not going to understand what I'm talking about. You know, why would I tell somebody something like that? They're not going to be able to help me. Well, let me help you first, <clears throat> excuse me, as a peer. And then I'll lead you in the direction to seeing a clinician, which will help you a little bit more. And even to the point where, you know, you feel like you might have to go to in treatment, which, um, you know, is becoming a lot more acceptable now. You know, there's a place, um, uh, Shatterproof. Have you heard of Shatterproof? I have, yes. Yeah. Um, I know about 10 or 12 people that have gone there in the last the last year that swear by that program. Uh, you know, but it's becoming more acceptable now. You know, and again, you talked earlier about EAP. Um, I'm not a big fan of EAPs as far as the fire service goes because the EAP is an employee assistance program for the non-first responders of, of, you know, they're going to tell you how to, you know, deal with your life stuff where somebody from the, you know, um, you're having some, some issues, some mental issues in the fire department. Uh, you're going to call the 800 number because it's a, a private contractor and they're going to get back to you in three days to tell you that it's going to be another month before somebody can see you, you know, where peer counseling, you can call up somebody who has the cultural competency now and speak to somebody about the stuff that's going on with you. And, and again, with, uh, you know, shameless plugs, maybe because there's other, you know, the IFF has a center, center of excellence, behavioral excellence. Um, but the guys and I know that went to Shatterproof within 24 to 48 hours, they were in the facility, you know, and that's, and that's what we, if you're at that point where you think that you need some help, you know, you need to do it as fast, as fast as you can. One more area before we go to some closing questions that I didn't make sure that I kind of pulled from you. With you personally, you mentioned EMDR, for example. What are some of the tools that have worked for you? You even mentioned um, uh, psychiatric meds. So what is what does your toolbox look like that helps Steve navigate his uh, trauma? For for me, at first, it was, it was uh, immersion therapy um, where, again, going back to that incident where I was in crisis with um, with talking about the 178th street fire. And, and again, I, I have to emphasize that, you know, 
when I was in crisis about that fire at that point, it was six years later. You know, but it was, and I had gone to two more fatal fires. But it, it was, it was this, this thing, you know, that just something brought it, brought it out because it's cumulative. It's everything that, and it might not be the last thing. There might be something that happened 15 years ago that you just didn't think about. Um, but when I went for therapy with, I had to tell that story over and over and over again. And it was, it was, um, uh, it was calculated on a scale from one to a hundred. You know, when I started, I was stressing at a hundred and the more I told it, um, the numbers got down to single digits eventually. And that's why I have no problem talking about what happened to me, why I really try and advocate other people talking about because you have to get it out of your head. It's just, it's got to come out somehow. And if it comes out your mouth and, you know, it's, you, you can remember it without reliving it. You know, if it's something that, that you can, that you can get um, out of your head, it's still there, but it's not going to cause you all that, you know, and that's what we're, I've considered EMDR. Um, I know a lot of people have had a lot of success with that. And there's something else that some other acronym that I've heard you talk about before. I'm not sure what it is. Um, oh yeah, there's so many. I, I, I'm trying to think what that might be. M MBD something or other. Or yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. EMDR is the, the main acronym I can think of. The one an area that you know was very taboo a while ago, which is you know we talked about that change in culture is psychedelics too. Ketamine and MDMA led counseling. And, you know mm -hmm. ayahuasca yeah. and ibogaine and all these things that the military. You know again the the actual members that are doing these themselves are having amazing success mm -hmm. and so you know for me that whole you know um gamut of tools should also be in that toolbox but sadly our prohibition laws are you know causing not only problems that we see on the streets and the civilians but it's stopping a lot of our men and women in uniform getting that therapy that is seemingly very very uh effective as well mm -hmm. yeah it, it again for me it's whatever works you know, what I did might not work for you, but you, but you can't give up. You just have to find out, you know, what it is. It a lot of, again, a lot of people, and it's the easiest thing is to go talk to a clinician, but you know, we, we have this fear of, of speaking to somebody about, about it, you know, and a lot of people don't like medication. Medication has helped me, you know, and all the other things that are available now that whatever works for you, you know, if you're, if you're struggling with this stuff, find out what works for you and use it absolutely well i want to throw some closing questions at you quickly if you've got time yeah sure brilliant so the first one that i'd love to ask is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated I did my homework james listen to your other podcast <laughs> thank and, you yeah and um uh, anything by simon sinek i'm a huge fan of simon sinek as far as leadership goes, um, there's another book called Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. Um, and again, it's not fire related, but it has a lot to do with, with team building and stuff. Um, Tribe is a tremendous book. Um, uh, it's just so many good things. And, try, and again, it's not about firefighting, um, but it has, it's such a strong message about the culture that, that we have as firefighters. Um, and, the other, and the other one is, is, uh, is uh, uh, Leg Legacy by James Kerr. Um, it's about the, uh, the All Blacks, the, Aust the New Zealand or Australian and New Zealand, New Zealand. rugby team. Yeah. 
Yeah. And a tremendous, tremendous book about, about uh, teens. I got one quote. I got to read it right from here. Is it um, one disaffected or selfish individual affects the group, remove them from the group, uh, remove them and the group will cohere and heal, you know, and that's, um, you know, uh, that's what I found out happening. Uh, again, I know we don't have a lot of time, but um, the next job I moved to um, had had some issues with some people who didn't think the way I did, you know, and, and um, had to remove myself from that, from that environment. Yeah, I can relate 100%. That was my last place. Five years of yeah. trying to be a positive change and realizing that positive change wasn't really what they were looking for. So What they wanted, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, then the next question, what about a movie and or documentary? My, and, and again, going back to, you know, um, uh, Sebastian Younger, you know, uh, Restrepo was, was amazing. Um, and uh, the, the other one he did, I can't remember the name of it. Is it Korangal? Korangal, yes. Amazing, amazing. Which I think is what, um, what led him to write the book Tribe was, was based on on those things but my favorite movie of all time is it's a wonderful life it has nothing to do with you know it's a christmas movie but that's my my most favorite movie um remember the titans was a phenomenal movie about teamwork um and uh and heartbreak ridge with clint clint eastwood and how he's able to get these misfit ragtag group of marines together to try and you know and and the way he led them it's those are just some, but for me, it's like, it, it's a lot more um, scenes from movies and quotes from different than, than one movie specific. Yeah, I was just so. telling, I think it was an interview yesterday where we were talking to someone, but one of my favorite quotes ever, and this is so pertinent to what you just talked about, your last apartment, uh, from Band of Brothers, you salute the rank, not the man. Not the man, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's another fantastic series. And learning leadership from from that point, yeah, yeah. I can respect the rank, but I don't have to respect the man. Absolutely, you know. And if I respect if I respect you as a person, I will automatically respect the rank. Yeah, exactly. But the person usually that's the most respected kind of person isn't wearing their rank on their shoulder. I mean, they, they, they are they are wearing it, but they're not wearing it. If you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, that informal leadership is is huge. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Sebastian, he's coming on back. Um, I think it's the third, third or fourth conversation, but he'll be back next month. So I'll be getting him on again. Awesome, huge fan. So yes, yeah. actually, can I tell you a quick story? Real quick? No, please. Yeah, talking talking about six degrees of separation. So his first book, which I read thirty years ago, uh, Perfect Storm. So um, the the National Guard helicopter crew that had crashed. One of the PJs, the PJ that lived, was in my probing class in New York City. Really, I went to recruit school with him. Yeah, you still so. you still in contact with him now? No, no. I, we we you know again, it's such a big job. We went to recruit school together. People found out about his story. You know, I uh, read the book. You know, and put two and two together. Uh, he was pretty humble about about what happened. Um, but you know, we went to different parts of the city. Um, just that again, how how so many different worlds, you know, collide for so many different reasons. Do you remember his name? Um, I can't. 
Okay, no problem. If you if you find out, because I mean that'd be a really interesting person to get on if they were end up in the FDMY, but they were a PJ on that. On the uh, was it something Gale, wasn't it? I forget the first name. The Andrea Gale. Andrea Gale, that was it. Yeah. So yeah, very cool. That was an amazing book as well. He's he's an excellent writer. He certainly is. Well, speaking of amazing people, is there a person or are there people that you would love to recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I, again, doing my homework on you, James, <laughs> I um, knew that we were going to ask that question. And I can't come up with one person because there's different people in my life that I feel. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to speak to them and ask them if they would be interested and then maybe get you in contact with them if that's okay. No, absolutely. 100%. It's funny because, yeah, some people are like, oh, God, you threw a tough one at me. I'm like, okay, so you've clearly never listened to the podcast before. Yeah, yeah. It's the same one 800 <laughs> times. So I appreciate that. No. <laughs> right. You know, I, I mean, I worked, with, um, I worked with three different guys in New York City um, that won the highest award that you can get in the New York City Fire Department. Um, and all three of them are the most humble people in the world that they would never do anything like this. You know, they're not going to come and talk about themselves, even though, you know, feats that they've done it at fire scenes are amazing. Yeah. Well, I hope, so, I hope we can persuade them. I had um, Al Benjamin on. Um, rescue I, Al was, I, yeah. Al's, Al's great. Yeah. He was, we were, um, uh, when I was a fireman in squad 41, I would, I would get detailed to rescue one and, and worked with, worked with Al. Yeah. So, Gentlemen. Yes. But again, it's it's that trust, hoping, you know, realize it's not about, as we talked about earlier, it's not coming on here and beating your chest and talking about what a badass you were. It's relaying stories, you know, being vulnerable, because I'm sure a lot of them have probably had their struggles too, like all of us that are human beings, but also Mm -hmm. passing on the knowledge to this global audience. There might be someone in, you know, the Sudan who's a firefighter who happens to listen to this and, you know, that applies to a fire they go on and it saves their life. So sure, absolutely. that's the way I look at absolutely. it. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and surviving the job, what do you do to decompress? Um, I spend time with family. Actually, um, when I actually, um, when I actually left the fire service, I never realized how much um, I was neglecting my family, it was like an epiphany. Um, I love the fire service so much. I put it before my family for such a long time. And then when I actually retired, I was able to see that and hopefully it's not too late, but we've been spending some really good time together. And, and um, so it's really nothing, you know, I mean, I've done, um, I'm back in school. So uh, I try to read, I try to read a lot and just spend time you know, my son's 16 and he likes to hang out with me. So that's really cool. So Brilliant. I got to, I can't get him to, can't get him to mow the lawn, but he likes <laughs> hanging out with me. We got the same problem then. Yeah. I, my little boy's uh, 15, almost 16, 16 in August. Um, yeah. Not exactly, you know, a magnet when it comes to me being out there doing yard work either, but he's, yeah. you know, he's an athlete and all this other stuff doing really well in school. So I'm like, all right, I'll mow the grass as long as you keep your grades up and, you know, <laughs> stay in up, shape, yeah. you know. <laughs> So brilliant. All right. Well, then the very last question, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more about uh, surviving the job, where are the best places online or on social media? Um, I'm not a huge social media guy, but on Facebook, it's uh, Stephen Gillespie. Um, On Instagram, it's, I think it's S Gillespie underscore FDNY, or it might just be Gillespie. 
underscore FDNY. And uh, probably the best way is just uh, an email. Uh, SMG9340 at Outlook. Brilliant. All right. Well, Steve, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Um, you know, this is what I love about this podcast now. We're talking about, you know, people coming on this community that we've got, this this tribe of, of you know, responders and all the other professions that listen all over the world, you know, the network that it's created. So, you know, you reaching out and, and coming on and telling your story and being involved with so many tragedies that, you know, would crush so many people and making the listeners understand that we can go through hell and you can navigate coming out the other side. But as as you illustrated, it involves asking for help and it involves understanding that there's this vast toolbox um, available to us, but you have to find what works for you. This is why, you know, people come on and say, oh, this works for everyone. I'm like, bullshit. Nothing works for everyone. So I want to thank you so much for being not only just generous with your time, but being courageously vulnerable today as well. I'm glad we were able to finally you know, get connected. And uh, I, I, I can't even express to you how honored I am that I'm speaking to you right, right now, that I'm part of these almost 800 podcasts that, that you've done with the people that you've had on your podcast. And yeah, I appreciate you letting me tell my story because that's, that's what it's about for me. And for you having this, this uh, um, should I keep kissing your ass? Or, Please carry or on. I've got all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but there's there's um, there's mediums for stuff for stuff like this now, and uh, to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I just want I want to share my story. Hopefully, that if I can, um, you know, when I do my presentation, I have one um, uh, one thing that I want to get over is that if there's somebody in the audience listening. Um, that decide that you know that they can go for help and get better. That's uh, that's my only objective. Mm-hmm.